Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Another fascinating episode in store today with some great advice for any business, whether you're new to the game or a more established business looking to give your marketing a bit of a review. Speaking of reviews, uh, stop what you're doing. Take five seconds to give the podcast a quick rating review. It'd mean the world to me. This week's guest is Ruthie Sterrett, founder of The Consistency Corner. Ruthie helps brands establish the foundations of the marketing strategy to ensure consistency. Uh, as someone who's worked in startups as well as some of these you know, larger, more established businesses, I can say from first-hand experience that consistency is key. If you keep changing the branding, changing your design style, tone of voice, uh, or if you just don't have this in the first place, it's all a lot more difficult. So let's get Ruthie on now to explain how you can maintain that consistency. Hi, Ruthie. Thanks for joining me today. Do you mind to just introduce yourself? Give us a bit of your background and uh, how you've got to where you are today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Will. I'm excited to be here. My name is Ruthie Starrett. I am the founder of The Consistency Corner, which is a marketing, branding, and content strategy agency for small businesses. I got my start in the retail world and I worked as a store manager and visual merchandising manager for very for many, many years in the brick and mortar space. And then had the opportunity to move into a corporate retail role with a small regional specialty, run specialty retailer, where you know I started out in merchandising again, physical merchandising, but had the opportunity to step into marketing and was really able to leverage my experience in front of the customer and as part of the customer journey to help support the business in crafting brand strategy, brand messaging, and then over the last several years, grow e-commerce division. And, you know, starting out with a business that was originally brick and mortar, growing into e-commerce, there was a very, very small e-commerce division. And then when COVID happened and the world shifted, you know, we were very thankful to have that e-commerce infrastructure in place and were able to scale and grow that to a much bigger portion of the business. But as a marketer, my goal was always to really make sure that we were looking at e-commerce division and the brick and mortar side, the same, because to the customer, it's the same thing, you know, as a back end business. And from a home office perspective, they run operationally very different. We look at them very differently. We treated them very differently, but that's not how the customer thinks about it. And so I really challenged the team to make sure that our messaging was consistent across all channels of the marketplace. And so since then, I have stepped into my own business with the Consistency Corner and helping small businesses, again, be consistent across all channels of the marketplace and making sure that they have branding and content strategies that they can sustain while wearing many, many hats that often small business owners do. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think consistency can be a problem for a lot of businesses, but I think there's also there's still quite a, a difference between that in-store experience and online experience. So even though the branding is the same and, and you know, the colors and, and all that sort of stuff is, is consistent and you recognize a website as, as maybe being part of that store, I find that the biggest issue we have is, uh, is the actual experience you get is completely different. It's so much more personal. Uh, well, depending on the store you go to, I suppose, but generally you get a, a more personal experience in the store and online you're generally left to do what you want to do. I don't know if you, do you know the store Argos? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, you, you flip through a catalog, you find what you want, you place your order, then you go pick it up. That was always Argos's business model in store and it's, and it worked for them and it's great, but that's how almost everyone seems to have done their online business as well. But in store, 
yeah, you just get you know, much more personal experiences. So that's that's the kind of divide I see. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we're stepping into a trend in the e-commerce space of a lot of direct-to-consumer e-commerce native brands beginning to establish brick-and-mortar presences. And I think whether you go brick-and-mortar first, then e-commerce, like a lot of legacy brands have done, or you go digital first and then brick-and-mortar, you find that there's unique challenges either way. But at the end of the day, what you all have to remember is what's your brand promise and what is the outcome that you're giving to your customers, either through the in-store experience, through the online experience, through interaction with your content and your messaging online. What do you want your customers to feel? And what I really think brands and leadership of retailers need to think about is does everybody in your organization understand that mission? And are they making decisions in whatever their organizational roles are that serve that mission? Because at the end of the day, like you said to the customer, the experience is different, but the feeling that they get from interacting with that brand should be the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. You want to feel, even if you're not speaking to someone or don't have to speak to someone online, you want to feel like that experience is similar to the one you get in store. So it's, you know, Apple is a great example. Their their website is is really well designed. You know, you get all the information you need. It kind of guides you through all that, and it's really easy to buy. And then in store, you know, it's more of a showroom style experience with with salespeople. And then you you can get other websites which are more or businesses which are more like functional, right? So I, I was buying electrical supplies the other day because I, I was having my kitchen redone. So literally just buying light switches, sockets, that sort of thing. Nothing terribly exciting, but the on-site experience was really good. I don't think they have a store. They are website only, but that experience was just, it was so easy and all the information was there and it kind of just guided me through. And it was almost as if I was having an in-store experience. I just needed to you know, quickly speak to someone and say, oh, do I need this product or this product? The website did that for me. And I think that's that's the sort of experiences you need. Whereas yeah. the majority of websites out there are just saying, like I said earlier, here's, here's your catalog, go have a look for the product you want. And then it's like when you get to checkout, that's just letting us know what you want and we'll go get it for you. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of brick and mortar retailers, they think about physical merchandising and having a merchandising background. I can speak a lot to this that physical merchandising or visual merchandising, it's the silent salesperson. It's when your salesperson cannot get over to interact with that customer, the visual merchandising is telling a story. It's guiding the customer to the assortment, to the collection, to what ultimately you think they're going to need. And digital merchandising has to do that times 10. Because like you said, there's not a person that you can wait to ask a question for. There's not a sales associate there to guide you. And so the copy and the words and the flow and the images, they have to answer all those silent questions that a customer has in their head. And that's that's an art to do all of that. Well, there's also the fact that you haven't got the product either, right? Mm-hmm. In the store. To, you to know, physically hold it, right. If you can't get hold of someone, at least you've got the product in your hand and you, you know, you, uh, let's say it's clothing, you might not know what the material is and, and can't find it on the label, but you can feel it and decide whether you like it or not. Whereas on the website, if there's no mention of what that material is, not only 
do you not have that reference point to say, oh, okay, it's cotton. I know what cotton's like. That's fine. But you just you're left just thinking, well, what is this thing going to be like? You know, what what material is it going to be? How's it going to fit? How's it going to like breathe? And you start yeah. ask you're asking all these questions because that information's not there. And which putting that information there in a way that's easy to digest because we can also overdo it and put too much information on a page and then the customer becomes overwhelmed and they don't convert because it's not easily digestible you know thinking about having fit images for clothing as we're talking about clothing having images from the front from the back from the side on different body types those images tell so much more of a story than a size chart with numbers and words, but like yeah. we need both because different people consume information in a different way. And then it becomes a design challenge from a u- user experience perspective of how do we design this page so that all the information is there, but it's not overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I think with, with fashion, I mean, I, I, I worked with a footwear retailer for a bit and loads of the feedback was the images are okay, but I want to see it on a person. I want to see mm-hmm. someone wearing the shoes. I want to see how it fits with different outfits and things. Same with mm-hmm. fashion, right? You know, you might want that one picture, that one kind of flat picture of the of the product on a on a plain background, just so you can see it fully and say, okay, that looks interesting. Now I want to see it on people so I can see it, how it fits. You know, when you're moving around, how does it kind of stretch and things? Those are the images which kind of tell you a bit about the fit, but also tell you like how does it get used right the actual mm-hmm. usage of that product more difficult to do with some other products admittedly you know if it's consumable i suppose you have to be a bit more creative with the image i don't think people are going to get you know you know i'm not sure if a, a picture of someone eating the product is going to make that much difference to them you Although- know what though i i think there's an aspirational piece of it too if i'm on the fence of let's say it's a nutrition supplement if i'm on the fence of am i going to purchase this shake or smoothie mix or not, you know, yes, an image of the product, but also an image of the product of someone consuming the product that's aspirational, that speaks to your lifestyle. That could be the thing that helps you decide, yes, this product is for me versus that product. And I think, you know, I see that a lot in, in the consumable industry is you get a lot of product only and you don't get photos of people and photos of people help tell the lifestyle story and help the consumer decide is this for me or not for me yeah particularly if you can get ugc so if you can get yes. your customers to submit photos and you'll yes. see like if we go back to supplements right if if you've got a dozen pictures of people who are in fantastic shape possibly at the gym and they've got that you know you know protein shake or whatever with them then that obviously speaks to you and you're thinking okay cool people who go to the gym or so for me, it would be people who are going to the gym and are in better shape than me are drinking this. Therefore, I want to drink it because mm-hmm. I want to look like them. Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah, we're going to talk about getting getting branding and content sorted organically before moving into paid. So do you want to talk about that? You know how? Yeah. How, how do you get yeah. customers clicking? Yeah, you know. When I think about paid content, whether it's paid search or paid social, absolutely, I think there's a a place for that. You know, you've got to pour into your top of funnel. You've got to drive traffic to your site. But what I see brands doing is they'll immediately turn on the paid aspect 
without vetting and testing things from an organic perspective. Or maybe we test it with a paid smaller budget, you know, a test type budget. But when I talk about testing things organically and testing your branding and really nailing your branding, it's kind of like I said, with making sure every single person in your organization understands the mission and makes decisions to achieve that mission because your content is the exact same thing. And I think so many people, they just think, oh, well, such and such brand did it this way. I'm going to copy paste. I'm going to try to do what they did. And then it falls completely flat because it's not content, images, words, messages that truly align with your message and speak to your ideal customer. And so that's an investment in time and sometimes money. Sometimes it's a matter of finding a great copywriter that helps pull those words out of you. It's hiring a designer with an elevated taste that can source the images and create the composition that tells the story that you want to tell. Because you as a founder or even you as a leader in your business, you can see the story in your head, but the customer can't. And we need great design and consistent and clarified branding to get that message out of your head and in front of the customer. Yeah. And I think it's sometimes it's difficult to get that out as well. So sometimes you do need to speak to other people. You know, I've done it. I've done it a lot of times trying to work out the the message for my business because I've got it in my head. Like I know what I do, but for so long I was struggling to put that into words. So I had to speak to people and basically get someone else, almost get someone else to write it for me because they could turn yeah. that mess that was in my head, these kind of thousand different angles and and statements that I thought of and they turned it into this one kind of that's this is what you do stick with this right and you as a marketer like you would think oh I should be able to do this for myself because I do it for my customers but you're right you have so much in your head that you need somebody to help you filter that to create a simplified message that connects with your customer yeah, and if you don't, it's very easy to end up with these statements on your on your homepage. I see it a lot, which just don't speak to anyone. They don't really say anything. They're they're kind of buzzwordy, and and people say it's oh, it's our brand message, and it's like, well, it might be your brand message, but if no one understands it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, but right? what does and, it actually mean? Yeah, especially with smaller brands, right? I imagine you know Coca Cola can chuck pretty much anything on their website. You know, they they could they could randomize a you know a, a brand statement well, using some AI tools, stick it on the website and people will pick up on it and say, this is amazing. What a great statement. But and I small think brands the thing about the thing about large brands like Coca-Cola or Apple or Lululemon or Nike, small startup brands, you cannot compare yourself to them because you're yeah. comparing your chapter one or chapter two or chapter three to their chapter 700. Like the consumer already has the backstory of all of those brands because of all the steps they've taken along the way. So when you try to copy paste what they're doing, of course it's going to fall flat for you because you haven't, you don't have the brand equity that they have. Yeah. I think there was a brand. So, you know, when uh, all the Facebook issues started coming up about what, a year ago, Was it a year mm-hmm. ago or two years ago, I think um, two years ago, I think it was two years ago now, actually. I think there was a massive brand, and I can't remember exactly who it was. I feel like it was something like Coke, Coke, Mars, Pepsi, Wharton, something like that. I'm pretty sure they cut their Facebook spending completely 
and just saw no change. Right. And so I guess part of that was the questioning around, you know, the effectiveness of Facebook and stuff, but it's also that brand stuff, right? Those are, those are such big brands that, you know, they don't, they don't need to run some of these ads. Right. Their marketing ecosystem is so complex and has been built on this foundation over, you know, somebody like Coke over a century that, yes, if they remove one piece of the puzzle, the wheels keep running. It keeps turning. But for a smaller brand who's still building that trust, who's still attracting an audience, building that brand equity, you take something, one piece out, and it can have a massive impact on your overall yeah. result. Well, you walk into a restaurant or a bar, you're either going to order a Coke or a Pepsi, mm-hmm. right? You you know which brand you like, and it's it's I think it's unlikely messi- any marketing is going to change that mm-hmm. unless it's bad marketing from the one you like. You know that might mm-hmm. push you away, but you know you, you know which one you're you're going to order. You don't know about you know cola. Cola, whatever, this small brand, which might be a better product, but it's a really small brand. You have to actually discover it. So that advertising needs to be there. Those messages need to be in front of you. And it's got to be consistent over time. I think, you know, I think we see that a lot. I think the Coke Pepsi example is a great example, but I think even another example is in the beer industry. And over the last decade or so, you know, it used to be you ordered a Miller Lite or a Bud Light. And then the craft beer industry exploded. But the difference in those disruptors is it wasn't just one that took on the big giants. It was hundreds that took on the big giants. And so now the competitive landscape for even Budweiser and Miller, Miller Coors, is that they have to position themselves against not just their one competitor, but now a collective of competitors. And so they've even had to develop new product lines and innovate and acquire, you know, craft brands to diversify their their portfolio to respond to the needs of what the consumer is doing. And so I think from a for a smaller brand, it's not about how do I copy the big guys, but how do I disrupt the big guys? How do I do it better? Yeah. This it's an interesting one actually, beer. I think a lot of these brands benefit from the fact that they are craft beer which just immediately sounds kind of premium and better. So that's like, you know, you've gained an advantage over the big brands just, just because you've done something a little bit different. You're now producing a certain type of beer. I don't even know why it's called craft now. So much, you know, it, like it so much started of it. out being called microbrews and it was called yeah. a microbrew because of these, the volume that the brewery was producing. And I'm sure some brilliant person put on their marketing hat and said, let's start calling this craft beer. And yeah. it, you're right, it elevated it. It changed the conversation versus like, it used to be, do you want a domestic or an import? And now it's like a domestic and import or craft beer. And people yeah. sit down and say like, well, what craft beers do you have on draft? And it has, it's uh, changed the conversation. A lot of the time, craft beer seems to be anything that's not a lager these days mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and that has a a new a new kind of modern logo modern branding that will always go down on the menu as craft beer you know you, or you see the cans and things and the assumption is that's a craft beer and therefore it's better yeah and you know what's interesting from a brewer perspective i, I think about a brewer who is you know the artisan who is making these recipes they're getting into the weeds and into the details and they're saying well no this is a sour or this is a stout or this is 
a, you know, Pilsner or whatever. The average consumer doesn't even know the difference between those things, but the craft beer consumer does. So then it's even about like, as they work through their content, choosing the language that speaks to their ideal audience. And if they're trying to speak to their ideal audience who already knows all these differences, yes, they can use more specific and detailed language. But if you're trying to reach a new audience, let's say you are a craft brewery or microbrewery that also offers some more milder beers, less flavorful, because you are trying to attract that Bud Light drinker to come hang out at your beer and give your beer a chance. You might say something about just craft beer and not get into the weeds because the average consumer thinks like, oh, that's not for me. It's too complicated. Yeah. Well, it's why loads of these brands launch a lager as well. You know, Mm -hmm. the the lagers are good, but it's still, I suppose, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a massive craft beer person, but my guess would be that in the craft industry, lagers are just a bit of a plain, easy drink. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's not got the complexity, like you said, but that's how you get those you you get that audience who only drinks those those kind of mainstream brands. You pull them in and then you move them into the other products. And it's interesting you mentioned terminology. So yeah, in craft beer space, you know, people do know IPA, double IPA, sour, port, you know, porter and all that sort of thing. What's interesting is the number of brands out there who will launch their own, they launch a model of something. And when you go to their website and you go to the, the the shopping area and on the the navigation list will have their models listed. And from a consumer point of view, you're looking at this going, I have no idea what the difference is here, right? It's not like cars where, you know, that, well, mainly there's just loads of advertising and you become aware, but it's also quite easy to work these out. You know, you I've, I've seen it with bikes, quite high performance bikes, high performance PCs as well where they launch their, you know, it will be a PC, which is a graphite model or something. And it tells you nothing, right? You, you want to buy the gamer series or the, or the VR series or something like that. And they come up with their own names, which just confuses people because it's a term that doesn't mean anything to anyone. Yeah. You know, I think from a marketing perspective, it's, it's helpful. You know, even when we were talking about this, about with your branding, it's helpful to have a conversation with somebody outside of your niche, because you don't know how much you know until you talk to somebody who doesn't know. And I can say, you know, as a retail merchandiser and store manager, I worked for limited brands and I I worked for Victoria's Secret. And I remember training new associates and they being like, how do you know all this? Like going through the different collections and models and features and benefits. Like I could just spit it off, right? And then when I moved into athletic footwear and I started trying to learn the brands and the models and the features and benefits, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be new. And it was helpful for then my company to have a conversation with me as a marketer and say, your customer doesn't know what you're talking about. When you say, you know, these terms, you have to talk to your customer in the words that they use. And you as an expert, sometimes forget what those words are. Someone showed me a really good example, actually. It was a food brand. And in the, ingre- I think it was food, a food or a supplement, might've been a supplement. In the ingredients, they had both the, the kind of official scientific name for it, as well as in brackets, what we know it as, 
as the consumer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing maybe legally they have to say what that scientific name is, you know, the proper name. But then it would just say in brackets, like aloe vera or something mm-hmm. like that. And you'd be like, oh, okay, that's what it is. And I thought that was really, really good. There's, there's quite often a bit of noise here in the UK about, you know, looking at the ingredients and in the food you buy. And if you see loads of e-numbers and loads of, if you see, I think some of the, some of the messaging was, if you see words that you don't understand, that's, that's a red flag for you. You know, that's, that's stuff that is added. It's not real food. So to then see the in brackets, oh, this is, this is actually something you're quite familiar with and you and it's common. I think that was a really, that's a really good way of dispelling some of that anxiety and, and questions around that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the language that we use in our marketing and messaging has so much power. And it's important to every so often take a step back and say, are we using the words that resonate with our customer? And from a conversion perspective, if people are not converting, maybe it's because we're using language that they don't understand. Yeah. Well, how would you how would you go about finding this language, understanding this language? I think having conversations with your customer, you know, being really connected to those the customer. If you're a brick and mortar retailer, spending time on the sales floor and just observing, but observing from a place of curiosity, a place of like, I want to go into this interaction and this time and I want to learn something. I want to observe something new. And if you're an e-commerce retailer, spending time on the phone, you know, people who are calling your customer service center, there's a chance that you may outsource that. But every once in a while, get in there and like have conversations and learn things because you will learn from your customers or just have conversations with your sales associates and your sales, your customer service reps that are on the phones or on chat if you have, you know, the chat capability, because you're going to take so much away from that. And then those people that spend a ton of time with the customer, they're going to be able to tell you, hey, this question was a one-off. We don't hear this very often. Or yeah, we get this question all the time. And this is something that maybe we can clarify in our messaging by you know, adding some content to our website here, or we can change the language that we use over here to make it clearer. I think just a little bit of time on the front lines makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think on, on the front lines, but as well as summing up those feedback loops within the business. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, if I, I don't think you should be in a position where customer service says to you, oh yeah, we do get asked that question a lot, right? Because that means that information's just been gathering there in customer service and not moving anywhere. Whereas mm-hmm. really someone should be identifying that this this question gets asked a lot. How do we, how do we stop that happening? Right. right. So someone was asking me, in fact, it was about customer service. He's saying that, you know, in busy periods, has anyone got any clever ways of, of handling the, the increase in, in tickets, ideally without having to bring more resource in? And I said, well, instead of trying to handle an increased number of tickets, how do you reduce the number of tickets that, that come into you? Whether that's through automation of tickets, you might be able to answer some questions just automatically, but also, yeah, what are these main questions that are coming in? How do you just answer those on the, on the website? And I mean, what I find doing CRO is quite a lot of the time I will get told what well, that information is on the website. It's it's there or it's, you know, someone's just got to scroll down the page for it. And I, you know, pull up the heat maps and I'll say, look, no one's scrolling to it. No one's, no one's getting past this section of the page. So we've either got to move it higher or we've got to try and get people to, to actually scroll. Yeah. 
you have to put it in a place that makes it obvious for people to get to. And I think about it from a, a visual merchandising perspective. And I think any visual merchandiser or shop owner can identify this. You have a product that let's say it's sitting on a specific rack or in a specific spot in your store and it's not moving, it's not turning. And you go to re-merchandise and you put it on a rolling rack, like temporary, right? And immediately customers flock to the rolling rack and they want to see what's on the rolling rack because they know, they know they've been trained that if it's on a rolling rack, it's either new or it's going on sale. So like in their mind, they know the rolling rack is an important place for me to go look. So on your website, if you have something buried pages and pages in, customers don't know to go there. But if you have a frequently asked questions button right next to your contact us, they're much more likely to find that information versus having to hunt for it. Yeah, it's an interesting one you mentioned that. I know a lot of people who are really, really not keen on FAQ pages. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with them on that because I think the question should be answered at the point that that person asks that question. So I shouldn't have to go to an FAQ page to find out your returns policy if I'm on a product and looking at that product. You want to answer that question straight away so that all I have to do is click add to cart. What a lot of people do is, and it's it's one of these, I think, annoying best practices that seems to have gone around, is tabbed bits of information. So you you go past the images, past the description options, past the add to cart, and then you get a few tabs, which will normally be product description, shipping or delivery, returns and reviews barely anyone clicks those tabs mm -hmm. the websites i've looked at people don't click those tabs because they don't really see them they're they're just they're always they're never that visible but I, the pushback i always get is but they're there you know the information is in these tabs they've just got to scroll down past the call to action mm -hmm. well it's obviously not obvious enough because <laughs> no one's clicking it and you're getting constant questions about about delivery and, and returns so yeah it's about you know, having that information available in the right place at the right time, which, you know, I make it sound a lot easier than it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so, easy. That's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, repetition. Well, you know, you were talking about consistency earlier. It's like repetition of that information as well. Another yes. example is one, one client I work with, they had their trust pilot review, the overall rating for their business just on the homepage, nowhere else. So we added it to their, their kind of, like we called it a USP bar at the top where it said, you know, free shipping, free returns and their trust pilot rating and conversion rates went up because now people were actually seeing their, the company review score. Yes. I, you know, I see that a lot that people think with promotions or messaging, well, we have it on the homepage and so much of your traffic doesn't hit the homepage, particularly if you are a third-party reseller where you're selling other brands' products, there's a good chance that people are coming to your product pages specifically through a Google search, whether it's a paid listing or an organic listing, they search that specific product, they land on the specific product page, they never saw the homepage. And so yeah. to your point, having those really, really important information pieces so that they're you know dynamic and they follow you around the site is really important. Yeah. And also with uh, retail, what's interesting is that obviously a lot of the time people know the brands that they're trying to buy. You know, uh, going back to the footwear retail example, 
people are familiar with the brands. They didn't really check reviews that much for the product because you know, they know Converse, they know Doc Martens. They don't need to see reviews of the products, but reviews of the business is what really helped because they didn't yes. know this particular retailer that well. Yes, that's a great point because you're right. A lot of times if you're selling something like that, you're selling a product that people can buy other places. Yes, you want to give the customer information about the product, but you also need to give them information about you because yeah. maybe they don't know you. Yeah, so we've talked about quite a few opportunities and I, I suppose we haven't really labeled them as such, but tips tips and things to do, You know, speak to people, make content obvious. What do you think are the big mistakes a lot of brands make, particularly smaller brands? Apart from copying big brands, we've talked about that. About that as yeah, well. you know, I think from from a product based business perspective, is that they do do a lot of small brands do a lot of leaning on the product versus telling their story or telling their customer's story. You know, I think that user generated content that you spoke about earlier is really helpful, and it's helpful to highlight and champion your customers and your story. Because if you sell products, chances are somebody can buy that product somewhere else. And the only way that your consumers are going to create a relationship with you is by getting to know, like, and trust you. And they get to know you through, you know, the awareness marketing around your brand. They get to trust you through the content that you're putting out there, both digitally and in your brick and mortar store. And the experience that the customer is having as they shop and after they shop and making sure that that's about your brand, your story, your mission, and not just the product. Yeah, it's interesting you said uh, there's always something else out there, right? Mm -hmm. And this applies to so many businesses. A lot of businesses think, you know, they are, they are really are unique. And they, you know, they might be, they might have a, a slight difference. But firstly, if you're not explaining those differences properly, People don't see the value in you. And secondly, there's just always an alternative. But, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, so the, the famous example, I don't know if you know of it, is the McDonald's milkshake, the, the jobs to be done interview about the McDonald's milkshake. Mm -mm. Essentially, I try to condense this really <laughs> a lot. The reason people were buying milkshakes at seven, eight o'clock in the morning is because they were a convenient alternative to a bagel or some fruit or something, right? They were filling, they, they, they did the job of that morning snack that people wanted. Mm -hmm. But you would never have thought that a McDonald's milkshake would be an alternative to a, like a bagel or a breakfast bar at eight o'clock in the morning, which is, mm -hmm. I don't think it would occur to anyone really, but it occurred, you know, marketing, <laughs> it occurred to the customers. So that's another thing you've got to think of, right? You know, other examples might just be, you know, the, the competition to Netflix isn't just Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, C Plus and all that. There's also Kindle Unlimited, well, which is Amazon, I suppose. Spotify, you know, podcasts, books. There are so many other things that people could be doing with their time instead. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the competition. And that's how you need to be thinking about it. You know, there's there's loads of new breakfast cereals coming out at the moment. I don't know. If, I'm guessing this is a big thing out there as well, but there seems to be a new kind of protein-rich cereal being launched every every month or so at the moment, and it's you're competing against so much. You're not you're not just competing against 
the the bad cereal, which is what they're presenting themselves against. You're also competing against anything else someone could consume at seven o'clock in the morning. Yes, absolutely. You you have to think about the choices that your customers are making, and at the end of the day what is the outcome that they're looking to get? And then make yeah. the connection between how your product helps them get to that outcome. And I think so many people, they want to say, well, our product is better than this other product because of X, Y, Z. And your your customer doesn't want to hear that. They don't even have the capacity to think through all of that and process information. They just need to know your product does what they want. Yeah, right? but it's... It's features versus benefits, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. that classic thing, which is still popping up. It's, you know, again, cereal. It's, you know, every serving has 19 grams of protein. And I'm like, well, okay, I I might, that might appeal to me if I'm training or something. I might think, okay, you know, get get some protein with the breakfast before I train. But you'll get loads of other people out there whose response will be, well, that's, that's weird for a breakfast. Like, why, why do I care about having protein in cereal? Right. But if the message is feel fuller two hours yeah. after breakfast when you eat this cereal, oh, okay, that's the benefit. Yes, I think you're so right. And I think a lot of product based businesses, they get really, really hung up in the features. And it's important to always go back to the benefits. Yeah. Not, not to say that you shouldn't talk about features. Obviously, I th- they should still be on, on the website in the description, but it's the benefits that is really what's going to sell it to people. Right. Uh, another example I use quite a lot is I was looking for a, a kind of ladder bookcase a while back. And one of the options I found, which is also the only product which described how you how you kind of fix it to the wall. And it specified that it use little adhesive like stickers so that you don't have to use power tools on the wall. In fact, I think it might have even specifically mentioned um something to do with kind of, you know, if you're if you're renting a, an apartment or something, you don't have to use power tools, drill a hole in the wall. You just stick it to the wall, basically. And I thought, actually, that's an amazing, that's an amazing benefit to this, this ladder, even to the point where it might not have been my first choice bookcase, so not ladder, but because my first choice has to be screwed into the wall, I can't buy it. Right. And I'm curious, did that, was that called out in copy or was that called out in images? It was called out. I can't remember if it was called out in an image. Okay. I imagine it might've done, but it was definitely in the copy, but it was just listed as a, almost like a bullet point in their product details. It was one, mm-hmm. one of the bottom bullet points was just sticks to the wall with ad- adhesive tape. I think mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. No, no need for power tools. Yeah. Um, which actually, sorry, there's two benefits there, really. Firstly, you don't have to screw hole, you know, drill holes into a wall. Secondly, you don't have to own power tools. Right, right. So you're solving two problems right there. And, and I yeah. think those are the types of features that sometimes, and, and it's a feature, but it's a benefit that like that person may have not even thought about listing, but it was able to convert you when you didn't even know that's what you were looking for. But because they called it out, you were like, oh, Yes, this is the better product. Yeah, exactly. It's it's another thing I've been talking about recently, actually. It's you can have the exact same product to someone else, but your product can be 10 times better just because you mentioned some of those features and benefits that it has. And the mm-hmm. other person just says, well, you know, leaves it off because they don't think it's important or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or even they just describe it in a different way. 
you know, mm-hmm. simply adding that power tool message could be enough to, to make you stand out and make right. someone go, okay, for, you know, you could be looking at them two screens at the same time. And for some reason you're saying, okay, well, this one's the better product, even mm-hmm. though they're exactly the same. Yeah. And I think for, for product-based businesses to say that sometimes you might have a product in your assortment and you're like, oh, well, that product didn't do well. We won't carry that again. And maybe it's not that the product didn't do well because it was a bad product, but it wasn't marketed correctly. You know, it, it didn't have the right copy. It didn't have the right images. Yeah. And so it, you don't have to start from scratch, but how can you tweak? How can you get better? How can you continue to test? I think A-B testing is so, so important when it comes to con because your consumers will then tell you what's resonating. And like you even talked about heat mapping. I think that's really valuable information. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned performance. I've seen a couple of websites really where their hero products have been quite detailed pages and a lot of their just other products, the the product description will be half a sentence long and that's it. And you're like, well, maybe these could, you know, maybe they're never going to be a bestseller, but maybe you could be selling 20% more of them if you actually put a little bit more effort into these pages. You know, that's an interesting conversation to have, I think, from a bandwidth perspective, because, you know, I can tell you that I worked with a very small team where the e-commerce department for a little while was one person. And so you have to weigh. And I think that's where even in like that 80-20 rule of, okay, what's our volume driver? Let's make sure that we're putting the most effort into that. And then some of those other pieces, if we can get to them, we do. But then testing, if we get to 10 more SKUs and we add content to these five additional SKUs or product pages, does their performance specifically increase? And then, okay, now we can decide, is it worth investing in another copywriter or another you know, graphic designer or whatever it is? Yeah. Because so many small teams, they're like, yeah, I hear you. That sounds great. But I don't have the bandwidth to do that. And so you you have to trade off and decide where you put that energy into. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking at a few tests at the moment for clients where we are going to test on probably the top three to five products because each each product page has to be uniquely adapted for this test. It's it's not something that just you just stick on every page. Those products have the traffic to, to run that test on. And it means you're not going to have to spend loads of time building this test on another 50 product pages some mm-hmm. of which, you know, you might get an extra sale or two a month if this test goes well. So, yeah, you know, there is uh, there is that element of yeah resource and being a bit sensible about it. And yeah, eight to twenty, right? P- you know, picking, focusing on the winners, that the high impact stuff. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Cool. Just before we finish, then is there anyone in the D 2 C marketing space you'd want to go for lunch with, or anyone from a particular brand? Yeah. So I'm, I love this question. And as I was reviewing kind of the questions we were going to chat through this morning, over the weekend, I watched the Hulu documentary, Angels and Demons. And I talked to you about the fact that I had worked for Victoria's Secret. So that's a big part of my, you know, career backstory. And so 
as I was watching that, they were interviewing the founder of Third Love, Heidi Zach, and I would love to have a conversation with her. You know, having come from one of the giants that, you know, she stole some market share from. And I really respect what they're doing as a brand from a direct-to-consumer model and a lot of the research that they've done. Their Fit Finder is really great. So I would love to meet her and have a conversation with her. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like that would be an interesting one. Yeah. Um, just finally, are there any marketing tools that you'd recommend to, to listeners? Yes, I absolutely love the story brand framework. Donald Miller is, I think, a marketing genius personally and love his podcast. But the number one tool and resource that he has that I think all marketers, especially in the e-commerce space, should take a look at is his book, Marketing Made Simple. And it specifically walks you through a simplified homepage framework and then email nurture sequence framework freebie framework and just breaks it down in a way that you don't feel like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. And so whether you're a web developer or marketer or not, even as a business leader, to be able to understand that simplified framework so that you can have a conversation with your marketing team or your e-commerce team or your design team in a way that everybody understands what each other is talking about, I think it's a it's a really valuable resource. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it made me think about there's a lot of brands who try and kind of reinvent the wheel with the product pages and things. And, you know, there's there's definitely pros to being unique and, and trying to make your page stand out. But when you change elements of the page, which consumers are used to, and there, there actually is best practice for, that's where it, it can get a bit frustrating for, for marketers and and people in CRO like myself, yeah. especially when, when the pushback is, well, that's, you know, it's our brand. That's how we do it. It's like, well, it's not working. So <laughs> yeah. okay, we have to find a way to fit your brand into the box that works. And I'm all for, you know, innovation and thinking outside the box. But to your point, there has it has to work. It has to get resolved. Yeah. And so if it's not getting resolved, how do we tweak it so that your brand can align with a framework and a strategy that that actually gets those results? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I know I am the complete opposite. I go so far down the CRO route of I just want it to perform. I don't care what it. I don't care how it looks. <laughs> you know, scrap the branding. Just, just make sure people, you know, people buy. So I do need to. I know I need to shift the other way a bit and become a bit more brand focused to work on that. Yeah. It's you know, it's from a brand perspective. You think we talked about Apple, and I think they're like you know one of the top when it comes to branding. And then I think about on kind of the other side of it, places like Big Lots, I don't know if you have Big Lots in the UK or like TJ Maxx or Ross, which are kind of like those discount retailers. And granted, they have a brand in and of themselves and they've created a brand story, but it's very much about the stuff. And when it comes to branding from a discount perspective or even a whole price perspective and thinking about margins, Sometimes you can get a higher margin because you're delivering a better experience. And I'm from the Southeast in the United States and we have Publix here. And Publix is like the grocery store, right? Their their, um, tagline is we're shopping is a pleasure. And everybody who goes there who also shops at Walmart is like, God, Publix is so expensive. But we keep going there because it really is a pleasure. And they have created that as part of their brand and deliver upon that with their brand promise instead of trying to be something they're not. So that was a very long-winded response of why yeah. I think branding is so important. <laughs> well, we have uh, we have Marks and Spencers here, which I think is is now doing 
I think the majority of their business is now food related, whereas they used to be a bit more fashion. And they, uh, I went to one of their stores recently in a, in a shopping center. It's, it's a, a big, big store. And they had a big food court there or kind of a food court. It's actually, you know, Marks and Spencer's food. And when I went in, my initial reaction was this feels like Whole Foods. That was the the kind of vibe that I got from it. And that's that's probably the kind of direction they're going in, right? Everything's Everything looks really nice. It's premium, not necessarily much more expensive, actually, but it just, it looks so much better. And it was, it, like you say, it was kind of a pleasure just walking around, having a look at stuff, seeing all the the extra flavors of things that you wouldn't get in Tesco or or Sainsbury's or something. Um, mm-hmm. So that was that was really interesting. Now it's made me want to kind of go back and just do my shopping there, really, because it's it's so much. It's nice walking around there. Whereas when I go to another supermarket that's nearby, I just want to go in, grab my stuff, get out. Mm-hmm. Right. the 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 only loyalty I have to that is it's the closest big supermarket to me, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing the power of experience and thinking about experience in as part of your branding can have when it comes to customer loyalty and, and converting new customers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has been fantastic stuff. It was the best way of getting in touch. If, if anyone wants to speak to you, find out more. Yeah. The best way is to connect with me on Instagram at the consistency corner. I hang out mostly there and provide marketing made simple tips there and on my podcast as well, which is called the consistency corner. So either place is a, is a great place to connect with me. And like I said, I really focus on championing smaller brands, making marketing simple when you are wearing tons and tons of hats, but doing it in a way to help your brand sparkle and stand out so that you can make an impact and an income. Amazing. And uh, I think that's the first time someone's led with Instagram as the, the first place to contact with them. It's normally... Uh, you didn't even mention LinkedIn, I don't think. It's normally the, the go-to. You know, it's interesting because in my community, we've talked a lot about Instagram versus LinkedIn, and I love them both, but I love Instagram more. So that's where I hang out the yeah. most. Fair enough. Brilliant. All right. Thanks so much, Ruthie. All right, thanks, Will. As Ruthie mentioned, it's not just about having a set of brand guidelines. The important thing is that everyone understands them, believes in them, and follows them. If your content or the imagery you use is not aligned with your message and doesn't speak to your audience, then it's just not going to perform. And oftentimes, uh, blame falls on targeting, ad copy, design, but for the wrong reason. Uh, They'll try and tweak a few words or try illustrations versus real-life imagery, but this is missing the point. The vast majority of the time, it's the fundamentals of the message that are wrong. The copy and creative you use has to tell the story of the business. If it does this successfully, you'll grow a strong brand. If it doesn't, it's all going to fall flat and you're going to waste a lot of money. If you'd like to speak to Ruthie, you can find her on LinkedIn. I'll put a link in the show notes. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Frost Lee joining me and we're going to be talking about how you can use video content across the customer experience. But until then, keep those customers clicking. (music) 